0: You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Before we dig into the message, I don't think it would be uh, remiss for us to acknowledge the horrific violence of yesterday, um, of at least the last 48 hours. Mass shootings and people that went to the store, people that went for an evening out, gunned down in senseless violence. Evil has been part of our world from the beginning. And there's no words that can be spoken that change that. Well, the results of living in a contingent, fallen, broken world. And both sides of the aisle have their solutions, and both sides of the aisle have their frustrations and their argument and their anger and their hatred and their rage. Our only hope is found in the peace that passes all understanding, found only in our Creator. We're diving into a series that's going to wrestle with a lot of these issues, but before I begin this morning, let's just take a moment, each one of us, and uh, acknowledge that as much of, that we can be as big a part of the problem as we can be the solution. But in the confusion of, of the world that we live, there is found an anchor as sure and firm as any in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, as a a people and as as a country and as individuals, we bring broken hearts to you this morning, fully aware of the rancor and the turmoil in our nation on the airwaves inside our own hearts. Please, oh God, help sanity to find her voice in our society. Help calm and peace to be withheld, held up, and may we be agents of your goodness to everyone we encounter, those that are mourning for this or other reasons, those that are angry for this or other reasons. We bring all of our anger and all of our hurt to you this morning and ask, oh God, for your mercy and your grace to rest on those afflicted, affected, and on us. That we might be your hands and feet to those who are hurting and to a world that is watching. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> you know in many ways our culture is no friend at all to patience. Now while we've got great admiration for long distance athletes and suffering artists, gritty adventurers and shrewd investors, per- persistent inventors, we don't place the same premium on the long term when it comes to our own personal life, our character and our spiritual formation. Our culture believes that if we could do just this one thing, we could change everything, that we could become the person we so desperately have always wanted to be. But, like that endurance athlete, that conceptual artist, that epic adventurer, that long-term investor, that pioneering inventor, most of life is lived in the in-between. In-between the starting pistol and the finish tape, the flash of brilliance in the last stroke of the keyboard, the first step on the trailhead in reaching the summit, the hunch and the payoff, the idea and the IPO. In-between is where the race is run, the grind is ground, discipline is tested, the rock is pushed, the reviews come in, the forecasts are published, and the investors are dubious. In between the like on social media and the meetup, the first kiss and the I do, the positive test and the delivery room, the entrance exam and the degree, the application and the approval, the interview and the promotion, the diagnosis and the treatment, the surgery and the outcome, the first breath and the last. All along the way come setbacks, obstacles, blisters and miscues, wrong turns, falls, fumbles, washouts, losses, rejections, disappointments, downturns, and failures, it's right there where life is lived. Just like that patron saint of the church, John Lennon, once said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Other plans on the way to greatness, on the way to dreams, on the way to retirement, on the way Life happens one step at a time. Like I said at the start, one very real aspect of the world that you and I live in is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired all at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly, conveniently, and in the microwave, conditioned by soundbites and memes and 144 character messages. The idea of anything long term cuts against the grain of the immediate, the casual, and the life hack. This is why adulting is so very hard. It's the middle and the most of the journey. And it was Nietzsche who saw this clearly when he said, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. It is this long obedience in the same direction which the dominant culture works so hard to discourage. For prevailing against the headwinds of our culture's ways, there are two words for people of faith who have a grasp of the long term. They're the words disciple and the word pilgrim. Disciple, methetes from the Greek, says that we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to a master in a growing relationship, a deepening of expertise and growth. A disciple is a learner, not an academic sitting in a classroom, but an apprentice to a master craftsman. We don't acquire information about God in the lecture hall, but skills of faith on the job site of life, And Pilgrim, Paradimaeus, tells us that we are people who spend our lives going someplace, whose path for getting there is in the footsteps of an expert guide. In John 14, Thomas asked him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Hebrews 12, the writer says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In the back part of the Bible's hymn book is a section written specifically for apprentice pilgrims on life's journey. In Hebrew, in Hebrew it's called Shre Hamalat. We call them the Songs of Ascents. They are the Psalms numbered 120 through 134. These 15 psalms, some suggest, were chanted by the Levites as they climbed the 15 stairs in the various architectural features of the temple during worship, perhaps. Others say they were chanted on the way out of, away from Babylon back to Jerusalem, but it's in the plural, ascents rather than a so that might not be most credible. It's more widely thought that they were sung chanted, probably in order, by the Hebrew pilgrims as they journeyed to Jerusalem for the great festivals each and every year. <clears throat> Topographically, Jerusalem is the highest city in all of Palestine. So those who journeyed there spent a great deal of their time climbing. And this ascent was not only literal, but very metaphorical. Because you see the trip itself to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward facing towards God. A journey that advanced from one place to another in maturity and depth. What Paul described when he said in Philippians three, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And three times a year, the faithful Hebrews would make this trip. It's explained in two places, one of them in Exodus chapter 23, three times a year, you're to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you come, you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed, meaning bring your bread. Celebrate the festival of the harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in the field. Celebrate the festival in gathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Commanded to do that because so easily we forget. The Hebrews were a people whose deliverance had been accomplished in the Exodus from Egypt, whose identity had been defined at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law, and whose preservation had been assured despite the 40 years of wilderness wandering. As such a people, they regularly climbed the road to Jerusalem to commemorate, to remember, and to celebrate. They refreshed their memories Of God's saving ways at the Feast of the Passover in the spring. They renewed their commitments to God's covenant as God's covenanted people at the Feast of the Pentecost in early summer. And they responded as a blessed community to the best that God had given them at the Feast of the Tabernacles in the fall. They were a redeemed and a commanded and a blessed community. And these foundational realities were retold, retaught, and recelebrated in these annual feasts. And between the feasts, people lived out these realities in their daily lives until the time came to journey to the mountain city once again as pilgrims to renew the covenant, to remember. It was God knows. That we forget most of what we hear. We forget most of what we say. But we don't forget much of all of what we do. Thus, it was in the doing of these celebrations. This picture of the Hebrew people singing these 15 psalms as they left their routines and made their way up from the towns and villages and farms and cities illustrates Our understanding of life as a faith journey. And there's no better traveling music for those on the way of faith in Christ, a way that has so many continuities with the way of Israel. Since many of the essential, not all, but many of the essential items in Christian discipleship are incorporated into these songs, they provide. A way to remember who we are and where we are going. In this series, which I may very well not complete, given the timing and perhaps arrival of a new pastor, is there 15 uh, psalms, I'm not angling to produce any kind of great scholarly, expositional sort of insights. Uh, but to offer rather practical insights that see these songs as a basic framework for encouragement and guidance in each and every one of our discipleship as we individually and together as a church are formed ever more into the image of Jesus Christ as he molds us on the journey in the in-between spaces of life, between the time we leave home and arrive at our destination, between the time we leave adolescence and arrive at adulthood, between the time we have doubt and arrive at faith, just like a trapeze artist lets go of the bar and hangs midair, ready to catch that other bar swinging towards her. It's a time of danger, a time of expectation, of uncertainty, of exhilaration, and of extraordinary aliveness. In the, between the two is where God does some of his very best work. On the journey, in the desert, in the wilderness, on the stormy sea, on silent Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And these psalms, are less like great anthems and more like entries jotted down in a travel log or a blog post. They're nonetheless clearly intended to take us all on a spiritual journey closer to God through, not around, the various difficulties and trials that come with being a human being. But it was William Faulkner who brilliantly described their unpretentious brevity. These are not monuments, but footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far, but a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved on again. So let's begin with this psalm at face value, which seems rather flat, and depressing, I believe, opens up to us the basic beginnings of spiritual life. And it all starts in an odd place, lies. From the wisdom of our childhood comes that limerick, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Oh, if that were true. There's perhaps no more deadly or destructive force in the universe than words. Because we all know that we know down deep in our knower that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can break your heart. And this is where our journey begins, just like a George Lucas movie, right in the middle of the story, the first step. Verses 1 and 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Who knows exactly what the writer was facing, but we've all been there and probably will be, one degree or another, caught in a web of lies. Either untruths spoken by us or untruths spoken about us. The consequences are the same, and the heart... The mind, the reputation, the will to go on are shattered. And the writer uses the word distress, which in the Hebrew means narrow space. It's the shoot where livestock were pinned prior to slaughter. An inescapable trap, a pit, a disaster. The tongue, James said, can burn down a forest, distress for sure. What a strange place to begin. But when we see the journey that we're all making, it makes perfect sense. This journey is away from falsehood toward the truth. Everything in our culture wants to deny the truths of God's word, the beauty of his love, the unfathomable grace of the cross, and his powerful resurrection, and to believe instead the lie that we can save ourselves. And our journey, our pilgrimage begins with the simple truth, that I am doomed and I need to be delivered and to be honest enough to admit it to God. As for practical deliverance from the destructive power of our own and others' tongues is simply to tell and rely upon the truth, but it takes strength to stop gossip rather than to repeat it. It takes constant reminding that left to ourselves we would rather believe a lie than the truth. But you see, the words, like the words, you're fat, you're stupid, you're slow, you're weak, you're unqualified, you're no good, you're not enough, you'll never learn, you'll never make it, you'll never be anything if Unchecked, those things, friends, experience teaches us, can be permanent in our life. And they can do unspeakably horrible things to us. They can drive your own tongue to lie, to cover up your insecurities, trying to make yourself more acceptable, more desirable, appealing to others, appearing to be normal, less whatever untruth you believe about yourself. And it goes on. Then you lie not only to others, you lie to yourself. What an idiot I am. I'm such a loser. I'm such a failure. I'm a sleaze. I'll never be anything. That. Stuff will rot your bones if you don't turn away from it. Deliver me, he cries out. Turn me away from this. It all begins with repentance, which simply means turn away. The journey begins by you and me admitting we're faced in the wrong direction to begin with. And so we turn and we take a step, the next step, verses three and four. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree." It's a toss-up, whether the writer is lashing out at the pain afflicted on him by his foes, or his own tongue, but he's pointing to the very devastating nature of words. He's giving us just a little more honesty than we are comfortable with, thank you very much, insight into the fact that these tongue problems are contagious, serious, and deadly. So the pilgrim does two things. First, he or she takes their own sin very seriously. Whatever part of it is theirs, they own, confesses, and identifies as deceitful. You recognize he's as much of the problem as anyone as, or any of the wrongs done against them. So, totally honest about what they want for theirs and others' tongues. Flaming arrows. Flaming arrows coming from nowhere. This is like wrath of God stuff. It's a confession like none other. Because... He's getting at his emotions. She's getting at her deep, darkest emotions on the surface and then takes them to the only, gets them to the surface and then takes them to the only place they can safely be addressed right to God. This is so honest. Honest. That's why, you know, anyone exploring Christianity, a great place to start is the book of Psalms because they express human spirituality so earnestly and and so honestly. This is where objective doctrine kisses subjective experience and the question, and then questions, this combustible fire Raises are all answered eventually, points. All of these issues are answered eventually in the cross where love and justice meet, where truth and experience come together, where time and space, where matter and spirit connect. When you've been dealt with unfairly, lied about, or shamed yourself with your own lies, this is where we bring it to God's hands, not in a one-off experience, but a lifetime journey of forgiveness for wrongs that we have done and the harder ones, wrongs done against us, we eventually learn, are all done to Him, because of the cross. And because of the cross, we can keep up the relentless uphill pace of forgiving 70 times seven because we know we need just as much forgiveness as anyone else. And then the last thing he does in this passage is something even more remarkable. He doesn't build us up to some kind of rah-rah, spectacular victory celebration. Instead, he reminds us that this journey has just begun. Remember, it's about ascents. It starts at the bottom, at the bottom of the valley. The chasm, the canyon, the foreclosure, the eviction, the bankruptcy, the diagnosis, the radiation, the breakup, the divorce, the termination, the layoff, the judge, the jury, the sentencing, the bottom. And so the psalm concludes. It ends in a way that no other author, no commercial songwriter, no therapist, or at least all too few of the above, would ever end. He concludes with a profound reality check. Woe to me that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. <laughs> Hardly a good finale. Woe to me just says this hurt is far from over. This deep hurt is still devastating. He's made progress, but he's not anywhere near the end. What are you saying? woe to me? Come on, man. God has delivered you. He's answered you. You're moving towards Jerusalem. You're on the journey with God's people to the holy city. Snap out of it. No, if we're honest, it's still woe to me how we too oftentimes feel. It's not right. It's not best. But it is so real. Now, Meshach and Kedar are places far away from Jerusalem. Meshech's north on the Black Sea, and Kedar is south in the desert peninsula. Together, they represent the sort of people who are lying about him and who he's been behaving exactly like. In the vernacular of the day, in the north were called savages, in the south were barbarians, arch enemies, Philistines and the like. People with whom war has been waged off and on for generations. And too long, he confesses, have I made my dwelling. Too long have I drunk their Kool-Aid. Too long have I been the problem. Just like So now he's making a highly significant, <laughs> life changing, destiny determining confession. He hasn't arrived. He's on the journey, but he's changed direction. Not north or south, from the tent of the prevailing culture where he's dwelled, but towards God. And the translators say that I am for peace. It's it's two words, Ani Shalom. Literally, I shalom. I peace. Peace, there's no peace in the previous verses. He wanted to slay them, or God to slay them with flaming arrows. His inborn natural, reactive, impulsive instinct was to choose the path of war and bloodshed and destruction. He was headed in the wrong direction But now he's turned. And he's not just walking towards peace, he's walking towards becoming peace. The shalom of God is his destination, so his disposition to these invaders of his head and his heart and his own mouth who have labeled him and lied about him and he's so used to combating with a fiery arsenal of earthly weapons, is now on his lips the place those weapons were fired from. Now on his lips is that which quenches the fire and breaks The arrows, shalom, the rule, and reign of God, beginning on His own lips, His place of war, His familiar battlefield, and what's He doing? He's leaving it all up to God now. Any response that he makes to their slander or those old repeated lies is not vengeful but becomes peace-filled for his good and for theirs. He hasn't changed Who they are, they still are for war, but he has left them in God's hands and taken the most important step in dealing with deadly words, which is to be in the right place himself before God, and that is toward He's no longer defined by the lies that people say about him or he says about himself. Instead to turn away from the author of lies. Now he's defined by the truth of what God says about him. He knows he can't control their response, he's left that between them and God. He hasn't changed that, them, but he has changed himself. He's given up the right to play judge, jury, and executioner, and instead simply takes another step towards God. I, peace, peace. A first step, and then another, and then another, in this controlled fall called walking, in a life transforming journey, repeated over and over and over, a long, obedient journey, in that same. Direction, And I'd recommend Eugene Peterson's book by that title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, for insight into these psalms. But this life-transforming journey is a journey of just one step at a time. The first lesson teaches us, turn around and walk towards God, and as Paul wrote in Philippians, and the peace which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. When the end isn't in sight and the idea of one more step is like the biggest challenge you could ever imagine taking and making that step without falling right on your face is like the biggest miracle you could ever imagine, that's when we let ourselves fall right into his arms and learn to fall towards him. Learn to trust him when you don't have the strength. For the journey. But the journey begins by turning and facing him. Let's pray. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.